Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's begin the conversation on Bloomberg Surveillance with Michael Schell, Market Field Asset Management CEO and Portfolio Manager. Michael, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. We'll start with a simple one. How on earth do you navigate the next 24 hours for this market? I, I think with, with no great certainty, uh, we, you know, we don't know who's going to win the election. I, I think that, that it looks likely that Biden will win. Not clear that the Democrats will take the Senate. And, and what's even less clear is what the market's immediate reaction will be. So, you know, I'm still of the mindset that, that there are certain things that seem to be happening globally. There is a, a cyclical rebound in, in durable goods. Um, led by the U.S. and Asia. And I think that will continue, whoever wins the, the White House. And, and pretty much everything else, I think you simply have to say you don't know and, and deal with not knowing. That's where I wanted to go, Michael. I wanted to get away from, you know, the domestic politics. We'll do that with some other good guests here uh, this morning. Michael, I'm fascinated by what you think about EM in what seems to be a not a surge, but just a resiliency and up to EM. Why is that yep. occurring? Well, it's two stories. One is index composition. The, the emerging market index is now absolutely dominated by Asia, you know, particularly South Korea, Taiwan, China, and, and obviously Chinese listed in Hong Kong. Um, and you know, those countries are really the least affected large economies by COVID directly. So you have stable domestic demand. Um, they also feed in you know, heavily into technology and, and heavy industrial activity. And, and that remains the strongest part of the, of, the domestic, of the domestic U.S. economy. So, you know, for various reasons, this time around, EM is, is something of a haven. And the underlying currencies are strong. I, I heard your comments on the dollar. You know, I would say the dollar is less weak at 94 rather than strong at 94. But the currencies which have really been strong this year have been the Asian currencies. Um, and, you know, you put all of that together, EM is a, is a relatively safe place to be right now. Michael, what's more important for your investment thesis right now, the U.S. election or the path of the virus? Uh, you know, I would say the latter, uh, and I would say the impact of the latter on demand for doable goods. Um, you know, because that has been, as I say, the, the, the big plus of the last few months has been the resilience and, in fact, latterly the acceleration of spending on doable goods in the face of a virus <clears throat> which has, has, has not been under control, certainly in the United States. Michael, what do you see in the high-frequency data at the moment, and do you think that should drive risk assets in the United States? You know, I think it's less important than it was. I mean, the high-frequency data told us in the springtime that, 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 that people were starting to, you know, engage in, you know, engage in commerce again. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, I don't think it's as important today, you know, that there's the fluctuations that you see in something like, rest, you know, restaurant usage. Um, you know, I, I think that, that you know, I, I think that you're at the point that you, you do need a leap of faith to invest at this point in time. I think you're entitled to say that the virus is not going to be conquered for the foreseeable future <clears throat> and the European economy is going to turn turtle and you're going to go super defensive. Yeah, I think that would be a mistake. Or you're entitled to say that, that we've come this far and we've seen patterns of spending emerge from the virus that look to be resilient and, and look to be fairly long lasting. And, you know, a narrow portfolio that focuses on, on, on the positives, I hate to say it, the positives of the virus, um, you know, probably makes sense going forward. 
Uh, I want to bring up ADXY, folks. This is a really important series. This is basically Pacific Rim currencies, Asia currencies, uh, uh, less Japan as well. And the chart, I hope we get it up here, goes back to uh, the beginning of uh, the year. And I, I, I look, Michael Scholl, at ADXY. That's not the right chart, folks. No. We'll get it for you here in a bit. But it's basically been a moonshot. Within that, what's the specificity in the Pacific Rim? There it is. Up we go off of the uh, March low. For those of you on radio, it's a moonshot from March straight up on the Asian currency. Good morning, Michael Purvis. Michael Scholl, uh, what is the specificity on the Pacific Rim? I want you to get granular here. Do you buy big cap? Do you buy consumer? What do you buy? Um, you know, I, you know. I think index level, Korea, Taiwan, both. You know, both quite interesting. And and you know, I've always felt that the A shares, for all of their faults, and they have many, many faults, are the only sort of true true diversifier of portfolios. You know, the A market does whatever it wants to do and doesn't pay a great deal of attention to the rest of the you know to the rest of the world. But I think high quality, Korean and and Korea and and and, and Taiwan, you know, do make sense right now. Michael Schall of Marketfield Asset Management. Michael, great to catch up with you, sir. Thank you very much. Part of the charm of Diana Amoa of J.P. Morgan is not only at UBS, her early work on trading desk where she enjoyed the bid walking away, but as a manager of fixed income portfolios, she's a bit aware that if yield goes up, Price goes down. We're thrilled that Diana could join us here uh, this morning. On the benchmark 10-year, Diana, I see since early August, the price has declined 3%. That's a lot of coupon. How far are we from real price decline in the bond market? Well, it really depends on what we get from these elections um, and then how things play out following that in terms of U.S. policy. Um, we have a range, um, so we had a range of uh, 0.5 to 1% on the 10-year um, over this quarter into year-end, looking at various scenarios, um, various election outcomes. So we think that the most aggressive end, um, so that would be a blue wave outcome. Um, initially, we could get up to 1%, but to move significantly higher than that, given the headwinds that we're facing with COVID uh, cases rising globally, and you know, as you were discussing with Europe shutting down, um, I think that's going to be really tough. Diana, when volatility is elevated across asset and correlations, traditional correlations start to break down, how much forced de-risking takes place? Well, in the, in, the, in the heart of the moment, I think it depends on what kind of portfolios people have constructed and what expectations are. Um, so in past political shocks where we've had outcomes that weren't priced in by markets, you suddenly did see a significant amount of de-risking because pe- markets were caught out, either because polls were pointing to a, a different outcome than what materialized. I'd say in this particular instance, what we're seeing actually is quite the opposite, where the polls seem to be consistently pointing to um, a a specific outcome, but markets are reluctant to price it, maybe because of the experiences of 2016 um, and Brexit. So I'd expect in this instance, um, the amount of de-risking would be significantly less than what we've seen in the past. 
Well, Diana, to build on what John was talking about, Henry Kravis of KKR last week said, I've been investing for over 50 years. I don't remember a time when I've seen such volatility as we see today. There seems to be a belief that because rates are so low, so close to the zero lower bound, that there is no haven and that people are all going to go to the same exit if there is some sort of event that transpires. Is, is that a sense that you have, that basically the only hedge right now is having extra cash to be able to respond to something? Well, extra cash is definitely something that markets already seem to hold. When you look at the MMFA function on Bloomberg, which we've mentioned in the past, um, a lot of cash went into money market funds. That went from about $3.6 trillion to $4.8 at the peak. It's still at $4.3 trillion. So there is a significant amount of cash already sitting in the sidelines. I'd say the frustration for investors um, who look at traditional 60-40 portfolios is that treasuries haven't actually been acting as a hedge in this latest bout um, of weakness. If you try and understand the logic behind it, it makes sense. You know, aggressive fiscal um, is one thing that would actually need repricing of curves in the back end of the U.S. As the, as the Treasury comes to fund that in the market. But a failure of that to materialize would impact equities. What investors need to think of is think of what else could act as ballast in portfolios. Um, so I'm, I'm fortunate that I started my career in emerging markets. So it's, I can think of several things in EM that could work as potential hedges on a downside scenario. Um, looking at the option space in EM currencies could make sense into an event such as these, as that has actually been working reasonably well um, mm -hmm. in certain pairs. So it, it's not that it's impossible to construct portfolios. It's just that investors need to think beyond traditional hedges. Adana, we needed that downside protection last week in Europe, that's for sure. Some headlines coming from Chancellor Merkel speaking at a news conference in Berlin saying the following. Facing a difficult winter with an aggressive virus, cites a tripling of COVID-19 patients in intensive care. And Tom, this has been the story across Europe, not just in Germany, yeah. but in the northwest of this country as well. Overwhelming the healthcare system was the yep. concern back in spring. And unfortunately in Europe, it's the concern all over again. Well, John, I, I'm colored by this by uh, outside my wall walk up in Manhattan uh, to see the tents go up as they did in February, March, and April just outside Mount Sinai. But to me, John, it is about hospitalization. I cited South Dakota uh, today, Sioux Falls, with some serious hospitalization issues. What's it like for NHS in the United Kingdom? Difficult, the future hard, and that's why the Prime Minister has reacted the way yeah. he did over the weekend. It was very localised, Tom, as I say, in the northwest of the country in cities like Liverpool, and they were hoping that they'd have this multi-tiered system <clears throat> to deal with different regions. Now the forecast coming from the advisors to the Prime Minister suggesting that that could be something that doesn't just overwhelm a single region, but overwhelms the country. This is about making sure by the time we get to Christmas, it's not a whole lot worse. The problem this prime minister has, Tom, is that he was recommended by his advisers months ago, back in September, to have a two week circuit breaker, a two week lockdown to prevent us from getting to where we are <clears throat> now. He chose not right. to. And here we are. The problem that many people in this country have is that if we're going to do another lockdown, what's the objective? What's the objective? Is it to get back to where we were before and actually try this track and trace system again? 
and open up more effectively? Or are we just doing this in the hope that we have a vaccine well, announcement, Tom, in the next 30, 45 days? I'm, I'm not going to trivialize here, but I'm going to point out the fact that these headlines from Germany are coming from a quantum chemist. And there seems to be a little bit of a dif- difference in the tone, John, from the quantum chemist versus the gentleman from Forden and maybe Wharton, and then also Prime Minister Johnson as a journalist. I mean, there's a different tone to a Merkel virus headline. Very much so. But Merkel and Prime Minister Johnson going in the same direction at the moment. Diana Ramoa of J.P. Morgan Investment Management. Diana, thank you. Our team today and tomorrow will try to give you as sophisticated a coverage as we can from people with authority. Brian Class is out of Carleton in Minnesota. He has a cottage industry going in the United Kingdom of looking at the decline of democracy. We're thrilled that Dr. Class could join us this morning from UCL. Brian, you have been hugely visible and hugely articulate on the decline of democracy. Let's begin with the U.S. Can we staunch that and resurrect democracy tomorrow? I think we can begin to. Um, I think that there has been a sustained attack on democratic institutions in the United States. And I think despite, you know, being a nonpartisan expert, this has been from one side predominantly, right? So you have um, rhetoric coming out of the president attacking the press, um, you know, trying to scapegoat minority communities. And also most recently around the election saying things like, you know, we can't trust the votes, even though there's evidence that we can, uh, encouraging supporters to vote twice, et cetera. So it's a long-term rebuild that we're going to need right. because, yes. Well, I don't mean to interrupt, but look, because because of time, Brian, I've got to get to this. It's too important. And you are one of the great experts on this. You are a fabric of the north, uh, northern part of our Midwest. Whether we go back to William Jennings, Brian, Huey Long, whatever, name the other names, and of course, President Trump. This is populism at hand. Do you see populism extending its reach across America, or as you say it, with clear and direct messaging, can it be staunched like it was with Huey Long of Louisiana and what it, like it was with Jennings Bryan? Well, I think reality has a way of catching up with populism. And I think what happens is often populists, often big slogans and few solutions. And what's happened recently is that the coronavirus has been reality. The economy has been reality for President Trump. And so I think there is a turn back towards people who actually understand things, right, that actually understand how economies operate and how public health can be best served. And that's why, you know, Dr. Fauci, for example, is the most widely trusted figure uh, in the United States political system at the moment because people are turning back to experts. So I think there is a pendulum shift that's happening in the United States. There are boards over the windows in midtown Manhattan and across cities in the United States. This is unusual uh, the day before an election. There is a feeling of eeriness before the the storm. And my 11-year-old son said to me last night, are we going to be okay? Is it going to be violent? Is the sense of violence overstated here, or do you get the sense uh, that the unrest, just in general, uh, has that ability of potentially percolating? I, I am very worried. I'm more worried than I've been about any election, uh, certainly in my lifetime. And I think the reason for that is because there's not really an exit ramp for either side here. The stakes are so high that when we wake up on Wednesday, or potentially much further along if we don't know the results quickly, you know around half the country is going to find this to be an existential threat because the hyperpolarization has taken such root in this in the, in the United States. And I think that's something where 
you know, this is a longer term project. It's not going to get fixed no matter what the result is on Tuesday. And I am very worried about the prospect of if there is a contested election, especially uh, widespread unrest. Brian, speculating what happens Wednesday morning, can we talk about what has happened and tell me whether attacking the process actually damages the process, given the record turnout that we've seen so far in early voting? Yeah, so I think there has been an, an, like a really good response here to voter suppression in the sense that, you know, in Texas, there are more people voting now and have already voted than the, in the entirety of 2016. But that being said, you know, there's also some really worrying signs. We had a foiled plot to kidnap the governor of Michigan. We've had murders at various protests. We also have the president directly endorsing a, an attempt to push a campaign bus from the Biden campaign off the road in Texas. So, you know, temperatures are very high. And I think that with Trump telegraphing that he might declare victory um, before all the votes are counted, the risks are high. You know, in, in economics term, we talk about tail risk. I think there's a very large tail risk here where it's, un, it's still improbable that there's going to be widespread unrest and violence. But it's such a damaging prospect that we have to take it very, very seriously and do everything we can to stop it. Brian, I asked this in a really delicate way, and it's not a loaded question. Why do you think those stores are boarded up? Who do they think is going to attack them come election morning, come Wednesday? Well, I think there's going to be, uh, you know, the potential for violence no matter what the result is, to be honest. Um, I think that there is a, a series of communities that feel extremely invested in this result. And I think that, you know, when you have a, a situation in which those fans have been flamed from people in power for a very long time, um, the polarization is just at boiling point. It's really at boiling point. And so I think, you know, regardless of what happens, it's not just about who wins and who loses. It's also the rhetoric that I think is extremely damaging from President Trump saying that we shouldn't trust the result, right? Months of saying the election is rigged despite evidence to the contrary. And so I think that only heightens tensions. And I think regardless of what the result is, there is a significant risk of unrest in American cities. Brian Class, appreciate the time this morning. Thank you, sir. University College London professor. Daniel on is with BMP Paribas. He's chief U.S. economist and head of macro strategy there. And far more importantly, he's one of our best, best thinkers of the set of outcomes forward. He has made real clear that we have a chance to be in the uncharted, the uncharted territory of many different outcomes. Daniel on which is the uncharted territory you're most focused on right now? Well, there are, are a lot of uh, potential terra incognita uh, places that we can go in this very unprecedented election. Uh, it's clear that we have uh, seen a fairly uh, uh, norm-breaking uh, president. But what I'm most worried about is uh, come January 20th, uh, there's still no clear uh, uh, picture as to who um, uh, the president of the United States is. Uh, and both Joe Biden and right. Trump show up uh, claiming that they're the legitimate president. Well, within that out which I'm going to call uh, suitably gloomy. So it's January 20th, and we really don't know where we are, or certainly there's uh, some form of tension and contested as well. What does that do to the economy? Is there a run rate of this economy right now where it can sustain that political shock? That is the trillion-dollar question. Um, I think, uh, Tom, that uh, uh, the implications of something like that are just 
so unfathomably profound uh, that it's hard not to believe that that's going to have a pretty dramatic effect uh, upon markets and the economy. So I really hope uh, that we don't get there. Um, and I think we do have a lot of ways that we can avoid uh, the slope toward a constitutional crisis. Uh, um, but uh, if we get there, we'll just have to wait and see. Dan, what's your view on how the market is pricing a lot of this? This narrative is all over the place. It's like a pendulum from one extreme to the other. A few months back, it was the worry about a contested election. A few months forward, it is the blue wave and pricing that in. And then all over again, a week going into the election, we start talking about contested again. Dan, where's that coming from? Yeah, I think it's because uh, the stakes are just so high and uh, um, uh, the outcomes are just so extreme uh, on, on either direction uh, um, when really what we're seeing here is just a shift in the polls of, you know, a couple points here, a couple points there. I mean, what really is striking about this selection is actually just how stable it has been. Uh, Joe Biden has always uh, led uh, Donald Trump by anywhere from nine, uh, from, from six to, to ten points. Uh, I mean, that's those aren't insignificant numbers. But uh, compared to the pretty wild swings uh, that we saw in 2016, it's actually um, uh, the, uh, the the main feature of this election is stability. And yet, um, uh, people, Martin markets, extrapolate from um, the the race tightening a bit to the race widening a bit, uh, and and they say this is either going to be a dem sweep um, or uh, or a contested uh, close messy election. And by the way. Uh, um, the fact that uh, the election is going to be contested um, is different from uh, the election actually being close, messy and chaotic. Uh, it's almost certain uh, that uh, President Trump is going to contest the results. Uh, he may contest the results even if he has won, uh, as he did, as he had done in, in 2016. Um, but uh, uh, the real question is, is this going to be close enough uh, um, that there is a legitimate case to be made uh, that a recounting um, or, or one of these uh, election lawsuits can actually uh, swing the difference. Well, Dan, you nailed it, though. Let's just sit on the markets for a moment. We're extrapolating out yesterday's price action, whatever yesterday or last week's price action actually was. That pendulum swinging so aggressively, despite the fact polls have been really, really stable. Dan, that just screams to me that no one has a clue what's going on. So Wednesday morning, even if we do get a result and we know what that result is, are we just going to extrapolate out last hour's price action without really thinking about what any of this stuff means over the medium term? Well, no, I think uh, that uh, come uh, election day or rather the morning afterward, um, uh, there is um, a set of scenarios where we can know pretty uh, for sure um, uh, who who the winner is. Um, and uh, um, so therefore, there are, there are some certain scenarios where I think markets can become pretty confident uh, that uh, Joe Biden is the, is the winner. Um, I do think if Donald Trump uh, is the winner, we, we may have to take longer um, for some of the key uh, Midwest states uh, to, to come in. Um, I think uh, markets uh, you know, hate a vacuum and therefore knowing uh, for sure uh, what the results are would help. Uh, um, but yeah, there is still um, this uh, looming uh, interregnum period uh, between November and January uh, where uh, if, if it does look like Joe Biden has won the election, uh, then we have a lame duck president who, uh, as we said earlier, um, is pretty norm breaking. Um, we'll again have to wait and see uh, what a lame duck uh, Trump administration uh, would look like. Dan, there's so much uncertainty, not only about the election, but also how markets will respond to any particular election outcome for people who are looking for some sort of ballast, for something to hang on to, some certainty. Is following the virus numbers really the most important thing for them right now? 
Um, I do think uh, that uh, um, the recent uh, market reaction is probably a function not just of, uh, of the election, uh, but also worries about uh, the third wave um, uh, in, in the U.S. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, at the same time, uh, uh, it does look like the uh, fatality rate of this wave, as tragic as it is, uh, is better uh, than uh, in the first and second wave. So there's a lot of moving parts here. Um, uh, again, I think markets are desperately trying to look for something to hold on to construct a narrative when the simple answer is that uh, all we can do is really wait. Where is the biggest asymmetry of risks that you see right now? Uh, the asymmetry of risk. Um, I think uh, actually the biggest asymmetry is that uh, the virus can mutate uh, in another way uh, that's less benign. Um, I know that uh, the you know the general science uh, of uh, epidemiology is such that uh, viruses don't actually want to kill their host. Um, they want to keep their host alive so that they can continue to to replicate, which is their whole purpose uh, of being. Um, but we should remember that in the you know 1918 Spanish influenza, we had three massive waves, uh, and it was actually the second wave uh, which was more dangerous and fatal uh, than the first wave. Um, I wouldn't rule out uh, that the virus can mutate again uh, in a very dangerous way um, that uh, makes what we had seen earlier um, only a foreshadowing of what's to come. Daniel Han, I want to go back to pure market economics. What's our GDP? this quarter and into the first quarter of next year? Yeah, so um, of course we had a very impressive looking uh, Q3 at an annualized 3.1%, yeah. um, but it's important not to uh, uh, read too much into that. We're still roughly three or 4% below um, pre-crisis levels. And now comes the hard part. Um, uh, much of the, the growth in Q3 is a mechanical uh, uh, a reversal um, of the lockdown-related contractions that we had seen in Q1 and Q2. Now, um, uh, uh, as uh, uh, the economy faces um, this third wave uh, in uh, in the mountain states and in the Midwest, uh, um, as we still await um, uh, whether a vaccine uh, uh, will be uh, uh, whether an effective vaccine will be ready um, and and widely distributed. Uh, now, I think comes and and. Uh, finally, uh, uh, Congress is currently stalled in providing um, uh, the fiscal uh, support that you know the vast majority of economists uh, think is is necessary right now. Um, uh, we are in this. Uh, uh, we are in the doldrums. Uh, we're, in the, we're in the stalling out sort of period. I think growth is going to get much much harder uh, from here. Um, and uh, uh, as we said, uh, there are some significant downside risks uh, uh, in uh, uh, before us as well. Hey, Dan, love catching up. Dan on there, the chief U.S. economist over at BNP Paribas, also heads up their macro strategy, covering the markets as well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.